Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness by doing something extra cool today. So we have two guests on, um, both of whom have been here once before, Julia Smay, strong woman extraordinaire, competitor and coach. And then we have the Vagina Doc herself, founding member of the Pelvic Floor Mafia Jocelyn Connolly. So we'll just start around, guys. Uh, this is going to be really interesting. Um, we're going to catch up with Julia and with Jocelyn, but we're going to get into some really personal shite, I guess you'd say today. I'd for say. For sure, you'd say. <laughs> we'll get into some personal stuff. And um, ladies out there, if you're listening, this one's going to be primarily for you. But guys, if you're listening, that doesn't mean tune out because a lot of this stuff's going to apply to you. And I know if I didn't say that, Jocelyn would slap me because a lot of it translates. So pay attention, guys. We're going to go into some great pelvic floor stuff. Um, Julie's going to tell us about an upcoming surgery. But before we do that, catch up a little bit, man. You, uh, you did the Arnold. I think we're going into the Arnold last time. Yep. And we haven't had a chance to catch up and I didn't get to hear about your experience. So tell me a little bit about that. It was pretty amazing. I, I had no expectation about, I guess I wasn't prepared for um, the amount of people that were going to be there and just the massive crowds that were going to be surrounding and watching us, you know, compete and do these feats of strength. So it was pretty awesome. The crowds were awesome. And it's funny that you ask, I think I finished in sixth place. So, um, we're super happy with that, considering a lot of these women are 10 to 15 years my junior. Really? Um, so uh, really happy with the outcome. But uh, one of the highlights was actually watching the professional strongmen. So seeing what they were able to do. And um, they actually drew a crowd uh, to our event. So it was nice to have kind of that residual overflow and people stick around and see what we're able to do. So it's pretty awesome to look into a crowd and um, of people who've never seen strong man or strong woman and see women lift things and do things that it just kind of blows their mind. So I kind of liked being that person that blows somebody's mind. That's awesome, man. Did you have a, a favorite event this year? Oh, I think that uh, I, w I wanted my favorite event to be the deadlift, um, but I got three reps instead of the six that I was going for, but uh, we're talking about 450 pounds here. So um, it was one of the very first times that I had tunnel vision. Uh, so um, my breathing and bracing was off on my last rep and uh, uh, I saw lights. So, wow. <laughs> um, but other than that, it was a lot of fun. And uh, um, we did have a medley as well, where we had to pick up a 225 pound block and carry it um, a certain distance. And we had to grab a sled that was 500 pounds and arm over arm, uh, pull that back 50 feet. So that's a lot of fun. It's super fast. You finish, you know, 15 seconds or less in doing this. So it's fast and furious. And it was a lot of fun. That's amazing, man. So amazing. I love hearing the stories coming out of those events. They're so just like power based, speed based. And uh, to me, that's like you know, a great gauge of athleticism. And I think it, it jives perfectly with Glassman's definition of fitness, right? It's yeah. like moving large loads, long distances quickly is yeah, really what it's all absolutely. about. For sure. So um, one of the things that was interesting lately was um, I saw that you were posting some information out on your social media. You're talking a little bit about um, some issues that you were having and you specifically mentioned the pelvic floor. And I immediately thought of Dr. Connolly over here and, um, so I think I ended up connecting you guys somehow, some way uh, across Facebook. And um, 
then uh, I think you began telling Jocelyn a little bit about your story and you guys mm-hmm. started corresponding a little bit. So maybe Jocelyn, you can tell us a little bit about your background in pelvic floor and then we can start talking a little bit about what's uh, specifically going on with Julia and how it can help other people. Yeah, so Jason, I just want to say thank you for introducing us. Uh, You're truly living out the Facebook mission of connecting people. And so I saw, uh, once we connected, I just said, hey, great to meet you. And then I think you sent me a message on Facebook. Yeah, I did. And uh, so at that point, I just asked, hey, what's going on? Um, And then I gave her... I told her what my background is. So I'm a pelvic floor physical therapist. I uh, help active women do what they love to do without issues such as urinary leakage, pain, or prolapse. And uh, so what I, what I, when I went, reached out to Julia, I said, why don't we hop on a call and let me hear a little bit about your background. Let me ask some questions before I just throw out just inform- before I Jocelyn vomit on you. <laughs> and uh, what else? What else do you want me to say? <laughs> just some of the things that you guys went into. Um, I think um, I know Julie is an open book. And so I know she feels comfortable, you know, telling a little bit about her story here and some of the things that she's been experiencing because she's already started to do it publicly. Um, so I think that uh, you probably have the green light to start sharing a little bit of that uh, of that stuff. HIPAA be damned. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, HIPAA does not count when it's not insurance. So really? that, oh. that's a fun fact. Um, I think, I think. But uh, so what I asked Julia, I asked her, um, because we are, we are, what do we live, like 40 minutes away? Yep. I asked her to test herself and test when I say test herself test her pelvic floor strength her flexibility and different types of contractions Mm -hmm. and then I asked her to test her uh, abdominal wall okay um and how you test so I she's like well how do I do that and I'm like well you got to stick your finger into your vagina and squeeze (laughs) So, um, being Which that is always fun, right? So, but, um, before we jump down that rabbit hole, let's talk a little bit about like the thing that you're, that, that brought you guys together. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the, the problem that Julia is facing and the, you know, the thing that she's reaching out to you about and, and to begin with. Okay. So Julia had shared that she had had issues with, with pelvic pain, correct? Uh, for many, many years and that she was planning to have a total uh hysterectomy in at the in august correct yeah yeah it's coming up right like just a few weeks and her concern was that there was no not really much information on getting back to her sport after or how she should prepare so uh at that point uh we took the conversation off of like complete public space and we were just chatting about it through Facebook messenger and then talked on the phone. Mm-hmm. And so then yeah. at that point where is it, where did you have enough information to start offering up some things to maybe start, um, you know, like, uh, getting a feel for what might actually, what she might actually be facing because, um, or did you, did you need to get more information from her before you were able to actually say, Hey, try this, try that. 
I think I, I needed more information, correct, Julia? Yeah, I think we were on the phone or we yeah. were on Skype for about an, over an hour. It was a great yeah. conversation where we just, I mean, I don't think there was any stone left unturned. Yeah. So a lot of things that people don't realize when they're going into a surgery like that is in even though Julia knew she needed to know about the pelvic floor, she didn't know about things such as, you know, bowel habits, right? right. Um, peeing mechanics, mm-hmm. things that uh, gave me information about her and her goals that I needed to get from her. Okay, so why are those things important for you to know as a doctor of PT? Like, what do those things indicate? Like, if someone's having issues with peeing or defecation, or the case may be. Uh, so I, the reason why I ask those questions is because if I know that someone is having issues, those issues, they're probably starting off with more dysfunction going into the surgery. So the recovery might be more challenging or the prep for the, the surgery might be more challenging. That would be the, my best reason, Mm -hmm. um, I could just go right into an exam and check, you know, what's going on. But what you find isn't always what people are actually living their life with. So you want to get both of those pieces, given how intertwined pressure, peeing, and abdominal function are intertwined. I got you. So, Julia, when you you guys uh, first connected, were you... Um, just looking for some sort of information about this uh, pain that you were experiencing, or did you have more knowledge about what was going on with you? Well, by that point in time, I had gone to the emergency room and I had a, a cyst that had ruptured, and then they did all these tests, and then that's when I found out that I had this very large um, fibroid and an enlarged uterus. So um, I knew that I was going to have to have something done surgically, went to the doctor, and um, was exploring my options at that time. Um, and I knew, and I had taken a pelvic floor class um, like a two years ago, but it was very focused around postpartum. And so I was looking at that from a coaching perspective of when I saw, you know, people pee on the platform. So that was in my mind, but I thought, you know, well, look at what's being done to me, even though I'm not postpartum, um, the same mus- <laughs> these same muscles and these same, th- you know, elements of my body are involved. I'm definitely going to need to team with a pelvic floor specialist so that I, I can... I can lift again. So I was terrified at that point that, you know, you're going to have to have surgery and everything I'm being told is, well, you know, you're never going to lift more than 50 pounds again. Sorry about you. Really? It seemed to be the information that was prevalent out there. There's not, um, there's not a lot of information specifically geared toward athletic women who are in CrossFit, powerlifting, strongman, you know, runners, triathletes. There's not a lot of, um, medical information that they tell you, uh, here's how you can get back to where you are. It's okay. Well, this is your new reality. And I, I wasn't willing to accept that and I'm not willing to accept that. So I knew (laughs) that I had to arm myself with some people, um, to get me back. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm beginning with the end in mind here. That's fantastic. So, uh, I know Jocelyn, you do a lot of work exclusively with athletes. Yeah. And so I think, um, Julie, you hit on a really key point, and that was that they were all about the moment. Like, hey, here's your moment, and this is your new reality, as to use your words. But Jocelyn, you're like, no, it doesn't have to be that way. So what was it about um, 
um, your connection with Julia that you felt like you could offer a little bit more of a positive horizon, so to speak? So my background in understanding pressure management and the pelvic floor, what I know is, one, we don't know enough in the medical world. So what they do currently on their the, the available research, they one, it's not typically in human subjects. Oh, really? Two, it's not in a dynamic condition with muscles. It's okay. So they test the loading on the structures, the supportive structures of uh, the pelvic organs, but they're not, it's only, let me just put it this way. The first textbook of pelvic floor function, uh, female pelvic floor was published within the year. Really? So there is not much information out there. Like in and the last year? In within this last the year. The last 12 months, wow. seriously. Yes, I That's just crazy. bought it and read it in two weeks and I'm just totally nerded out. And it made me realize like, wow, okay, there's so much more to this that we all need to work together. And like as someone from a movement perspective and understands pressures from a muscular uh, motor control standpoint needs to work with the engineer that's doing the loading testing on these, on the, the non-muscular tissues to, of, that support the pelvic organs. So that being said, she needs to see someone that understands, okay, pelvic floor rehab, abdominal rehab, but what, uh, what happens with a heavy lift? How can we change the way she's lifting and for me, I can blend those two worlds. So I figured I'm never going to tell someone they can't do something. And if I do, I'm saying, okay, here's the risks. What kind of steps do we have to take to minimize those risks so you can ultimately do what you want to do? Uh, and then if we have to change the way you're doing it to suit or to, to fit your new body, then that's what we're going to do. Mm, that sounds like such a, a more pragmatic approach. <clears throat> excuse me, than just saying, hey, <laughs> your life is different as of tomorrow right. kind of a thing. And uh, knowing you a little bit, you know, and knowing how you think, I know that you weren't going to accept that. So, right. you know, as you started looking at more and more resources, what were some of the things that you found aside from the fact that, you know, <laughs> a lot of people just want to sweep this type of stuff under the rug? I think I found that there's a lot of women who have gone through this and um, haven't been vocal about it. And even women in my community and my community of strength and women that I know who've experienced a hysterectomy and, you know, subsequent um, trying to get back to where they were, whether that's doing CrossFit or strongman or powerlifting and how um, they just talked about the time that it took and that it was something that was very slow and that they had to be patient with themselves, but they were able to get back. But like me, they had found that there were no resources and they didn't have someone to go to that they just kind of felt things out um, for themselves, or they talked to a friend who came back. And so it was very, it was very tribal in nature. It felt like, you know, they drew in their people, um, to find out more information, but there really wasn't, nobody knew where to go. Nobody knew, you know, what to consult. If you go online, that's the first place that we all go to, but there's nothing there. There's nothing there that says, you know, I can, you know, start moving, um, this 50 pound kettlebell after, three months, um, it just says, you know, don't lift 15 pounds for more than eight weeks and then don't lift 25 pounds for more than three months. I mean, there's just these very, um, but where does it end? There's not, you know, 15 pounds, 25 pounds. All right. 50 pounds is all you can lift forever. 
um, there's no continuum there. So there's no real direction on, okay, well, I've made it to this point. Where do I go from there? And I found that it was pretty consistent across the board that women were seeking information, but they didn't know where to go. And they mm. were just, it wasn't, it wasn't there. It's not there. Yeah, has that been your experience? It's just not there. Yeah, totally. And for me as so I'm currently putting out a lot of content. It's scary for me to put out content on topics like this because I'm basically, I'm trailblazing. There, when I go to look up research on abdominal pressure differences with the squat versus the de deadlift, anything at all, there's minimal information out there. And it, when we're thinking about uh, women in sport, this is definitely, Women in sport in general, when we look at how the history of our world is relatively new. So when we're talking about strongman competitions and lifting those kind of weights, it's even more yeah. that they're it's magnified, I'm yeah. sure. And I think there's also a delineation too, is that there's a lot of information or more information geared towards women who are postpartum mm. versus I have no children and um, I'm having a hysterectomy. So what does that mean and what's different? What's uh, yeah, that even, there was like a double whammy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting, right? So why is there so little information for the woman who isn't postpartum? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it just that that experience basically changes the body so much that people have focused on it? Or has it just not been a focus at all of the medical community? I think it's the last thing that you said. It hasn't been a focus of the medical, medical community. I don't want to get too into more social topics, but... A lot of women were excluded from research for a long period of time. So that it was one challenge. And right now we don't necessarily know a ton about the gynecological system. We're, we're getting to know more, but it's just new that people are recognizing issues such as endometriosis, uh, recurrent cysts, PCOS, and even in the medical medical community that where we're relatively more educated on topics like this, like if you talk to someone, you, they may have never heard of it. Mm -hmm. So, so some of these cyst issues though, I mean, I, I think every woman I've known at some point, you know, if we've gotten into a conversation deep enough, she said something about a cyst or some sort of thing in and around, you know, her abdominal area. So why is this stuff not being caught? at say like a pelvic exam or something like that? Is it, is it just a different type of thing or, or no? I, I mean, I guess I can only speak for myself. So I went to the emergency room in May because I had what I knew to be an, uh, a uh, cyst that had ruptured because I've experienced that before. And I only, only after getting an MRI and also um, a sonogram, um, only after that did I find out about the thickening and hardening, hardening of my uterus, which my uterus is super enlarged right now. And then I have what I've called Kyle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Kyle is my uh, fibroid that's a very large um, grapefruit size. I didn't know about him. So I had been going to my you know regular gynecological exams, which is every three years because I don't have a history of, of 
of any ab- anything abnormal. So the time period in which you can go is is greater. So there's really no way for them to know like has this grown fast? Has this grown slow? And I wouldn't have known about it um, unless I actually had that cyst that ruptured. However. Um, now that I know what it is, there have been subtle changes in, in my training, in my setup, in, in the pressure that I'm feeling in my um, pelvic area that I just attributed to, or back pain that I just attributed to, I'm working harder, I'm doing bigger shows, I'm lifting much more weight. So I started attributing these things to my training and just dismissed them because sometimes as athletes we live in this state of discomfort or pain or ache, if you will. And, um, and I feel like I have a lot of body awareness. Um, but that, apparently that just was like flew out the window and I didn't even realize that. But once I started thinking, oh my, you know, I, I remember when this came on, I remember telling my coach that I don't understand why I'm having to change my position in my deadlift because it feels weird. Um, so I think sometimes as much as we know, we don't know, mm. you know, so we're armed with a little bit of information, but it's not enough or we don't have people around us that, you know, there's not other women or even men saying, oh, did you hear? Maybe you should go see, go to your gynecologist, go to a PT. Um, we don't know because nobody talks about it. So what were the, uh, the you said you've experienced this before you had a cyst you said burst, yeah? Yes. So what were some of the symptoms that you experienced that told you, that cued you to, hey, you know what, I got to get to the ER? So it's pretty painful. It's just an ovarian, it's something ruptures inside of you. It almost, it feels like a hot cattle prod is, you know, stuck inside of you. I don't really know how else to describe it. And I've had it happen where the pain dissipates in an hour or two, three, but this had gone on for seven hours at that point and I called my friend and said hey you've got to take me to the emergency room this is not getting any better I need to get this looked out Um, but yeah it's and I know you've talked about that you've had experience with that as well it's just something that I think women are taught to accept a lot of pain and we take a lot of pain and so we tolerate a lot and we just accept that oh this is just part of being a woman or this is part of my, you know, a female anatomy here. And I think sometimes we just don't even talk about it. Mm. And you had a similar experience, you said? Yes. And I'll get them every once in a while, but I was in, in grad school at the time and it was at night. And so I know that night pain isn't typically, uh, a musculoskeletal problem, at least with my history. And it just feels like someone, it, it, well, one, I felt like so nauseous and I broke out in cold sweats and I felt like I had hot acid just running through my abdominal cavity. It was so intense and there was no position, nothing mm-hmm. that helped. So I am someone that pushes off going in to get help unless it's like an emergent situation and it dissipate the pain dissipated within maybe a half hour but i was up and down going to the bathroom trying to i thought i had to pee but didn't and and i mean it was unlike it was unlike anything i could i can describe it's not just a cramp like a period cramp it's like a period cramp on acid <laughs> on fire yeah <laughs> on fire. and i mean it it's horrible wow and when 
when you ask why why isn't why isn't anyone talking about why isn't there any information I recall being in health class in like fifth through eighth grade and then through high school never once were we taught about endometriosis never were we taught really about I mean maybe it was like a few senses about cysts or fibroids uh and the the standard of care is either, okay, maybe we can get you on a birth control, or if we remove this, we want it to be big enough for it to be worthwhile, uh, it could come back. So uh, and coming from, I mean, the only thing that would take me out of practice, I mean, my ankle could be like the size of a softball. I could be limping from a knee injury but if I had horrible issues with my period or something like that, no coach took that seriously. Mm. And I just felt like that's how it was, how I was treated into the medical mm. system. So it's, it's, it's something that needs to change. It's getting better, but you know, mm. in the athletic domain, we need to be taught, okay, what's, what's okay to push through and what's not. And coaches need to be aware of this because, I mean, it it's just as impactful as like an ankle or. There was a point in my life where I actually had to have a doctor's note to, so that I could use FMLA because I was out once a month because I was so sick, because my periods were so painful and and terrible, and I think that although it is funny and I, and I'll and I'll laugh and be the first one to joke about going off to your TP for your 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 menstruation time I'm the first one to laugh at myself on that but I think that um and women are embarrassed to talk about that but also it becomes they don't know how to laugh through that joke or they don't know how to like find their voice in that and say no it's not funny this is serious and it's causing me pain and it's interrupting my quality of life Mm, uh, one of the things that I really admire about you is you have found that voice. Yes. And I'm, I'm very <laughs> curious, um, it, was there a shift that you had to go through uh, mindset-wise, or have you always been that way? Or was there a trigger point in your life where you just said, you know, finally, fuck it, this is who I am, and I'm going to share? You know, my mom used to always say that I was a strong-willed child, so I really think that there was something inherent in me that was just, you know, screw the system, <laughs> you know, with that loud voice. But I would say, you know, within the last... Uh, um, seven, seven to eight years. It's just, it's, it's really been more pronounced. And I, and I think when you get to your fuck it forties by that time, you just really don't care. And I, and I think now more than speaking for myself, I see so many women around me and I work with so many women, um, in my day-to-day job and then also, uh, coaching in, in CrossFit and then also strongman that, um, sometimes I feel like I have to be the voice and then sometimes I'm the person telling them you can speak up for yourself. Um, but yeah, it's just, I guess it's kind of who I am now. Mm, I gotcha. And Jocelyn, are you seeing similar things in your practice? Are you seeing women not wanting to talk about certain issues that they're dealing with pelvic wise? Absolutely. So when people are referred to me and they don't know why that they're being sent to me and I say, okay, uh, We'll bring you in. It's like that. Well, they fill out the intake paperwork and it asks questions about like everything from pooping to peeing, sex, birth history, uh, gynecological history with periods, 
And when I walk through each piece of thing that they skipped over, I can just see like their voice lowers and they don't want to say vagina, which is not a swear word. I mean, it's, so it's, it's like there's a shame attached to, to saying, saying that they have a problem and then there's a shame attached to the word vagina. So it's once I can get them to open up, it's like, oh my gosh, the clouds separate and they just spill. Well, this is actually my history. Mm-hmm. And then I hear, I mean, it's amazing how much information that they give me and they've never shared with anyone else. Well, this seems like a common problem. I mean, you guys are, you guys both, you know, mentioned that you've experienced or had experience of women who are afraid to talk about certain parts of their anatomy or their problems or whatever the case may be. And then, you know, earlier before we got on the mics, uh, you know, we were talking with my wife and you guys started talking about female stuff and you guys all just like lowered your voices as you're talking, even though you're in a private space, or I guess maybe I'm the guy in the room. I was maybe screwing it up or something, but, um, you know, how do we, or, or maybe I should ask you specifically, what do you do or what do you say to a woman who really is having difficulty sharing and you know, she needs to share so that you can help her to the best of your ability. How do you make her feel comfortable? What do you say to her? So it depends on the person, but sometimes I share, look, this is what I do every day. A lot of women suffer this, suffer from this, and this is the first time that they ever share, so it's okay. You don't have to share everything with me today, but know that this is a safe space. It's a safe, non-judgmental space. And at that point, sometimes I share a little bit about myself, like, look, I've... I've never had children, but I've suffered from X, Y, and Z my entire life. Uh, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing because there's not enough of us. There's not enough conversation. And when people know that I'm a real human and I'm going through similar issues, that's usually the point that they'll be like, okay, here's what's going on. Gotcha. So sharing my story has been, I've, I've seen the strength that it's given other people. Sure. Yeah. It sounds like you're just doing some basic rapport building. Um, so, I mean, in my experience in the medical community, that's probably one of the worst things that doctors do (laughs) is take the time to build rapport because it's like in and out, you know, it seems like there needs to be some sort of standard of care around the amount of time that you need to spend with someone or either having some pre-care before you even get to the doctor at that point. Like, what are y'all's thoughts on that? I'm grateful that my, the woman who's doing my surgery is one of the things she asked, she had a very long and comprehensive um, um, interview with me to ask me a lot of questions. But one of the things she recommended to me was pelvic floor care. And so she's one of the only doctors that I've ever been to that recommended that. And when I told her that I had somebody lined up, she was like, oh my God, that's amazing. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that somebody, you're the very first person I've ever had that has sought that out prior to. So you actually know what it is. You actually know, you know, you're asking me these, you know, questions that align with, you know, having somebody lined up to help you. Um, So like you said, just, just having those frank conversations. And that's kind of why I'm being so open about this and it is it is a personal thing but at the same time I've had so many women who have messaged me and I think if I can just be that person that's you know bold enough to say yeah my uh, my lady parts aren't working right <laughs> and it's okay there's no shame in that that you know here's what I'm doing and it's okay and um, 
hopefully that when it's when it's time or you know and they need care that they'll they won't be afraid to ask the questions or they'll know in advance oh yeah julio had a pelvic floor therapist so maybe i need to ask her or mm-hmm. you know it's and we have a lot of women in in strong and strong man or strong woman in this case that you know once we're lifting <laughs> double and triple our body weights um there comes a point in time where women do leak and it happens every single competition I've been in. And so, you know, in our conversation earlier, whether that's just poor mechanics or whether that's a poor, uh, weak pelvic floor or too tight or whatever that is, we don't know. And unless I have those engage in those conversations, maybe they'll never have somebody suggest that to them. So. Yeah, for sure. Maybe we can uh, dive into that topic a little bit. I know, um, I forget her name, but there was uh, one of the big time CrossFitters a few years ago made a post like a public post about peeing while doing a particular wad. And I know you've mentioned uh, women peeing on the platform, mm-hmm. this sort of thing. So um, Jocelyn, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the mechanics behind that, why it's happening or, and if it even should be happening. So there's many reasons why someone might be leaking, but what I want to find out is first, is it just poor mechanics during the movement? And if it's poor mechanics during the movement and the problems underlying strength, the leak is going to occur pretty quickly. Uh, I also am checking, is it a coordination problem? Is the person breathing in at the time of impact versus exhaling at the time of impact or vice versa? And at that point, it's just too much pressure for the system to manage. Uh, One reason could be that the pelvic floor is too tight to effectively uh, control the descent of the bladder neck. And so what happens is either it's too tight, too weak, not you're getting a leak because of that, or it's the, 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 the rebound is not handled well. And then the other reason could be whole different non-PT problem we need to work with other healthcare providers is the actual mechanism that stabilizes the bladder neck is not intact, meaning similar to if you have no ACL because you tore it, PT is not going to magically get you a, <laughs> give you an ACL. Magic wand. <laughs> so ex- surgical intervention at that point is necessary, or we need external support such as uh, a brace for the knee. So in, in in this case, it would be okay. Do we need to stabilize the pelvic organs with a pessary, or do we just need to support the pelvic floor right now so that upon impact, when the leaking is occurring, uh, there's less downward motion. So during a lift in in strongman, I would want to know: okay, is it is is the athlete too? pressurizing her system too much and is she holding pressure down toward the pelvis versus a balanced pressure management strategy across the low back upper back and the neck so so just real quick when you're saying pressure are you referring to like the bracing movement yep the type of brace uh so a lot of times when when i see crossfitters that have never had kids uh it's it's a pretty easy fix, sometimes not, but it's their overbracing and maybe overcontracting the pelvic floor and their pelvic floor gets weak and tired or tired and then can't do what it needs to do. And so then in, in those scenarios, it's just 
the muscles fatigue, right? Yeah. And so leakage so, occurs, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So it's not really like a like a massive issue other than just learning to maybe strengthen that part of the body or 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 should or should you be able to get to the point where you shouldn't have any leakage at all? Should it be conditioning your body? It, it's more or less when there's no structural problems uh, and no anatomical abnormalities, it's a training error and it's a conditioning problem. So just like if you were working up a, a squat motion and you were training those, your quads, your glutes, they'd re- reach a point where you just can't lift anymore. Mm-hmm. Or if you're doing a uh, two mile run test, like you are at, once you hit lactate threshold, you're, you hit that point and then you only can go so far. So you can train that. It's just being smart about your training. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yep. So here's another question that, that, um, seems kind of obvious to me, but I'm obviously it isn't because, um, it seems to be recurring. So, um, you know, like, uh, my wife was telling me about an issue she had with fibroids, right? They were discovered late. Um, some friends of mine that I went to high school with had, um, ovarian cysts discovered late, right? At what point, or, or are there some symptoms that are some common symptoms that women generally ignore? that they should be paying attention to when they're going to see a doctor for a pelvic exam or if they feel like they need to see a doctor, what should they be looking for paying attention to so that they know, you know what, look, I need to go get checked out, maybe um, maybe pelvic exam, but also maybe ultrasound included with that. Like what are some of the things that you guys have, have seen or experienced personally? I would say anything that's, that's different than the norm, anything. I would, instead of like pinpointing things, I would just say, go to the doctor and ask them questions and have an open, honest conversation and say, um, you know, my, my menstrual cycle is very heavy. I have a lot of pain. Um, I'm lethargic. Maybe I'm anemic. Maybe they don't know what anemic means. Um, maybe I'm having pain with sex. Maybe I'm having, I'm not able to, uh, use the bathroom correctly. Maybe I feel like I need to pee when I hear water running or, you know, there's, there's so many different things that I think that we just ignore and let, we just assume that there's nothing wrong instead of asking the questions. So I I don't even know if I would say, I mean, I'm sure that there's a list of things that, you know, you would want to go through. You're the doctor (laughs) (laughs) to say, you know, seek advice. I think from a, for myself, from like a PCOS perspective, um, a lot of those things with the heavy periods, the, um, the pain, the, um, facial hair, um, just, you can go online and look up PCOS and you can see there's a list of, of symptoms. So if you have some of those symptoms, maybe have a conversation with your, your doctor or anything else that's causing concern or is out of the norm for your body. Just ask that question. Don't be afraid to ask the question. And if your doctor brushes you off, well, pull them back or see somebody else. Mm-hmm. Wrong doctor at that point. Yeah. So besides what, besides the obvious of, and obvious symptoms of like excessively painful periods, uh, the symptoms, uh, Julia was talking about associated with PCOS, meaning the hair growth, uh, the, the pain and heavy periods, the fatigue. I, what I would say is are you having more pain, like let's say back pain or radicular pain? And when I say radicular pain, that could be symptoms that run down your leg, like numbness and tingling on the side or the back of your leg in your groin. 
And do these symptoms magnify during your cycle? Um, and then I want to know, and oftentimes people are so unaware that they, I send them away and I'm like thinking in my head, please just don't come back until you, you pay attention because this will be so much more productive. Yeah. People are terrible observers. Yes. So, um, yes, I want to know, is it magnified during the cycle? And then typically the natural history of back pain of just an episode of back pain lasts about three, four, maybe six weeks. Uh, let's say it's not a, a pretty significant ligamentous strain on the supportive structures. That's about the timeline and your symptoms should improve. Now, if it's not, if your symptoms are not improving, then I, my first, my first thing that's wheeling in my head is, is there tissue inside the body that shouldn't be there? Mm. And then, um, it, does it change with stretching? Does it change with exercise? If it's not getting better with that, then that would be an indicator of going to your primary care. And depending how good your primary care is at that point, they may send you to say, okay, you should check in with your gynecologist or you can go straight to your gynecologist. And at that point, your gynecologist should be thinking, do it, thinking it, along the lines of those things and checking in with you of, okay, what's your diet? What's your birth? Are you on birth control? How are you doing with your birth control? Maybe considering testing hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, and at that point coming up with a plan with you rather than telling you, okay, this is what's going on. You have to do this. Sure. It seems like, um, some little innocuous things though could be, I guess, indicators, like you say, back pain, right? Anyone who sits at a desk is going to have back pain, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, well, how do I distinguish this type of back pain from a different type of back pain? And maybe you can't, but like when you go for a pelvic exam, right? Do they, and do they take the time to do um, an ultrasound or is it just like a physical inspection? I mean, because it seems like a lot of these sort of cyst related issues are only found with like, you know, some sort of technology. So I'll speak from my experience because everywhere I move regionally, it's different. But when I had my cyst and I went in, I had to schedule an appointment. I had to schedule a separate appointment to have a pelvic ultrasound. And they did an ultrasound on the outside. And then they also did an intravaginal ultrasound. And it wasn't until then that they saw, they saw the cyst. They saw the, the, uh, that it was currently... Um, Act that it had a it had a blood flow, so there was there was it had burst, and so uh, they, I, there would there would at that point it's just monitoring, and then they scheduled me a follow up to see if it was growing or if what was happening to it. So it was a whole separate appointment, but that could be different depending on the office. Oh, I see. Is that has that been your experience, Julia? I well, the times that I've gone in, it's been in the emergency room, and I was um, just the normal office visit. That's not part of it. You know, you're just there to get your normal answer the questions. You have back pain? No. You have any X Y Z? No, 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 no. And then you get your, you know, swab, and then you're out of there. So your your <laughs> annual well women's. Yeah. So I don't think that there's they don't. It doesn't sound very complete. Like it sounds like very checklisty. Mm -hmm. and, and completely incomplete. It is. Yeah, I would say I, I do have a, um, 
I am part of like a concierge care doctor. And so I think that even in my situation, she asks, you know, every year I have an hour and a half of her time where she'll comprehensively ask me, are you having trouble with X, Y, and Z? And even though I was having back pain, you know, that's my fault. I didn't say anything, but I attributed it to something else. So even self-awareness, you know, plays into that. I don't know if the doctor can have the full responsibility there. It's just, you know, the, know thyself or right. pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So like you were, it sounds like you're maybe attributing some of it to training. Yeah, I definitely of. thought, okay, well this, you know, I'm having these issues, these back issues because I'm training for heavier shows and I'm lifting heavier weight and I'm just tired because of all the training that I'm putting in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, maybe there's a mom out there who's like, I've got these, you know, four kids and I'm just tired and I'm, my back hurts because I'm picking up kids all day. Um, so this seems like one of those sort of fine line pieces that you guys were talking about earlier, the difference between maybe, uh, you know, a woman who's training versus a woman who isn't, Yeah. you know, like really having that bodily awareness and knowing where and why the pain exists. Um, you know, that the average person, I guess, wouldn't have that necessarily to contend with. So maybe it's more of a difficulty with athletes if you feel like you're having back pain because you had an exceptionally, you know, difficult day in the gym or something. Right. I think that that can be hard to differentiate because there are times, I think, especially in strongman, because it is so, some of what we do is very challenging and it is very, very taxing on the body and um, the CNS system. So recovery does take longer. And so you tend to get used to certain aches and pains being around because it's just kind of what's accepted, you know, with what we do. Um, so, I mean, I'd agree with you, but as I think as athletes, you know, we're, we're kind of used to that, that sore, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I know you see a lot of different types of people, so I'm curious. I mean, I think the answer is obvious, but a lot of times the obvious answer isn't obvious. Um, do you feel like uh, a woman who's training heavily, you know, for a particular sport or a particular event, uh, do you feel like, you know, in general, her pelvic floor is going to be in a better position or better shape than a woman who's untrained? You know, I feel like um, for a period of history there, we went for this, this time where women weren't supposed to do much of anything, especially if you're pregnant, right? You're just supposed to sit around and do nothing. And of course, that's all changed now. You've got women working out in their third trimester. But um, I mean, what have you seen and, and what's your uh, take on that? Absolutely. 100%. Yes. People, the women that are active are usually have way better, uh, musculature in terms of how healthy it feels than those that who are not. And the way I'll tell you what my experience is, is your, their pelvic floors feel like the inside of your, your cheek, Mm -hmm. like smooth, and then the inactive population, pelvic floors feel like chewed meat. Really? Not healthy. Wow. Not all the time. So it's really, the importance of exercise is just not given enough uh, recognition mm-hmm. in in society. I mean, it is for, 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 you know, aesthetic reasons, but for health, we can do better. Uh, but there's also that too much of a good thing is not a good thing right. in that really athletic women also could have super tight pelvic floors. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, if you don't stretch, you start to have your sciatic symptoms. Well, if, if someone is always training and not doing the uh, recovery that they need, then that can be a problem. Or if they're training, their training style is to Valsalva every time they lift, then that might be a different story as well, at least from the pelvic floor standpoint. So um, maybe you could take us through just like a quick sort of overview of like what would be a good pelvic floor baseline. I know you mentioned this. Um, I'm sure you and Julie have talked about this, but what are you looking for? What would you like to see before you even start thinking about, you know, treatments and all the rest of it? So what, like, do you want me to go through an exam? Just and like, um, you know, like if, you, if you're seeing a new patient for the first time, mm-hmm. right, and you're uncertain of how to prescribe movement or prescribe a particular thing, mm-hmm. what do you need to get um, in your head before you can accurately predict what needs to happen? Okay, so the way I'm going to think about this is people ask me what exercises to do, and I know in the back of my head I can't, I can't really confidently give you exercises like core exercises without knowing the status of your pelvic floor. Which makes perfect sense. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm an advocate of even if you don't have problems, let me do an exam just because it's should this should be part of the well woman. That's creepy, man. (laughs) But it's so helpful. So what I want to test and what I want to know to prescribe movement or training would be Okay, what is your baseline awareness? Do you know do you know when you're contracting your pelvic floor or do you know when you're relaxing your pelvic floor? Second is I want to know how long you can effectively hold a contraction without cheating with other muscles. So oftentimes uh, people will I'll tell them to contract and hold the contraction and they're squeezing their glutes, they're squeezing they're contracting their abdominal wall and all I want them to do is just the pelvic floor just isolate and that's something that they just can't do so I'm looking at okay when this person has this demand can they effectively complete the task I'm looking at so let's say this this person that I'm I'm examining is a a speed athlete so they're doing a quick movement I want to know the speed of their pelvic floor contraction because if they don't have any speed, then that uh, it's like the sprinter that has the 100 meter dash isn't they're they're starting five seconds after the gun. So, uh, and then I want to know if they can voluntarily coordinate their abdominal wall, their breathing with their pelvic floor. So, Talk to me about that last one a little bit. That seems like it would be the most complex thing for someone to train. You're you're talking about, um, I'm assuming, muscularity, at least in terms of the the order of sequencing, the firing of the muscles. Mm -hmm. So in normal, quote unquote, normal people, we shouldn't have to think about our pelvic floors that much. Now, if we're lifting 550 pounds, then... Like Julia. Yes. So (laughs) the game changes and what we what the rules are change. So the, the typical neurology uh, or neuromuscular con, uh, connection with the, as the core, the, the transverse abdominis and the pelvic floor contract almost simultaneously. Maybe the pelvic floor just a second before. Both of those contract prior to 
movements. Like if I'm going to lift my arm up, those are going to contract before. So, uh, whenever I'm, I have one hand on the, the bulk, the, the pelvic floor tissue, one deep into the uh, abdominal wall to, to feel what the lower abdominals are doing. And I am seeing when I tell them to do something, what happens and then also what happens to their breath. And so it's more of an observation other in one thing you can do is you can connect people or insert an internal surface EMG sensor and then that measures the muscle the changes in the muscle activity and we can see it on a screen or we can see it on a machine that's what we're looking at so then if you have to resequence that do you actually actually give someone instructions on how to fire what is that, yeah, how's yeah. that how that works yep and oftentimes i mean not oftentimes but maybe 40 to 50 percent of the time people can correct right away really? typically athletes or people that are active have more control um then the other t- if you have the other 50%, they have no idea and they can't, they just, they're not ready. So we have to Im- try things like the biofeedback where they're seeing what's happening and they're seeing that when they should be relaxing, they're actually still contracting. And that's something that has been that visual that sometimes there's verbal feedback can retrain the brain. Interesting stuff there. It seems like uh, it seems like that would be one of the most difficult things to do, but people pick it up instantly. That'd be interesting to see, just like in in practice, to see how that happened, and then to see like the way it manifests itself in movement. But you're right. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know that much about you know the pelvic floor, but I consider it to be part of the abdominal, the abdominals, right? And I mean, I, I know I guess technically it isn't, but by the same token, the trunk is responsible for you know, like the stability that we need to generate power of like short movements and then speed and long movements. So if that whole thing, that chain isn't working, it seems like, you know, by default, you're going to be limiting yourself in some way, shape or form. So, um, Julia, I'm curious, like when you, um, when you and Jocelyn spoke and I'm sure you told her the extent of what you plan to have, um, have done with the hysterectomy. I'm just curious, like, what were your thoughts I mean, aside from, I'm sure there's some fear leading up to this, but what were some of your thoughts in terms around having, um, a full hysterectomy? You know, um, you know, a lot of people, I think a lot of women especially feel like they're less of a person if they, you know, have their uterus removed and this sort of thing. There's a a huge psychological impact to a lot of people. But when we spoke, you were just like, well, I don't have plan to have plan to have kids. So it's no big deal. You know, it was funny last weekend. I had a really rough weekend. I I literally sat on my couch and cried for like three hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I'm, I can be the bravest, most outspoken person, but I still, I still have to kind of purge. And so, you know, I had that moment and thank God I just like let it flow through me because then when it was done, it was done. But um, it is scary, and I and I was scared, and I think that the hardest thing for me um, in all of this has been being told that I couldn't go back to doing something I'm so passionate about and love, and being told that I couldn't go back to lifting heavy, and that that's not even in the realm of possibilities, and um, it was really frustrating. You know, I think even more than thinking about the surgery and the pain that I'm going to go through, I think. I've been through, I had, you know, appendectomy. I've had, I can't tell you how many 
things I've hurt or injured, you know, doing strongman. Um, I'm not necessarily scared of the pain, but it's scared of what the impact to my life and, uh, um, the quality of life that I have. And so that was, that's been my biggest fear, um, more than anything. But I think that in talking to Jocelyn and then also in having conversations with other women who have, um, sparked up my DMS, you know, um, I'm realizing that, Oh, okay. There is this whole world of women out here who have gone through this and who have survived and now they're back and doing what they love. However, it's taken them a year to a year and a half to get back to that point. And so I think it was really good for me to hear that number one, that I could get back there, but also hearing the, the length of time, me at first I'm thinking, Oh, you know, in six months I'll be right back at it and I'll be doing this and I'll be healed up and just really understanding, um, what's really taking place and what's happening to my body and the healing that it needs to go through (laughs) and really rushing that along is not going to be for my benefit. So just really looking at the long game here. And I think I'm the kind of person that I have to have information. I have to, it's like, I kind of went into a little frenzy when I, you know, found everything out. I'm just like, info, give me data. I have to consume it. I have to understand. Um, but that helps me to uh, put logical steps in place and have a awareness and an understanding of that in place. Because if I'm just marching along and I'm, you know, we've all got to have kind of goals that we're working towards. And um, now that I kind of have that, you know, I see this 12 to 18 month mark of, oh, you know, you can be back where you are. It helps me realize that slow and steady wins the race, right? Um, so. So have you had to take any specific steps um, leading up to the surgery? I mean, I know this, um, that's a big scary thing, right? Like yeah. at the end of the day, you're going under the knife, you're going to have, you know, anesthesia flowing through your body, mm-hmm. you know, just dealing with the repercussions of coming out of the anesthesia is a big deal, right? Making everything start to function again. But, um, have you had to do anything physical to start preparing yourself for this particular event that's coming up? Um, it was funny. My doctor gave me, my surgeon gave me, she's like, you won't need this, but here I have to hand this to you. So she, it's basically a prescription of, of how to work out, how to train. So she tells people, you know, um, you need to actually start going to the gym and walking and doing these things. Um, so I'm just continuing to train as if I were training for a competition up until, you know, a week before, um, I'm having a big blowout party, <laughs> a deadlift party, a max party a week before. Um, I think, um, more than anything, um, as far as, um, not as far as training is concerned or getting my body ready, it's getting myself ready mentally. I'm not the person that likes to ask for help. I'm always the person giving help or, you know, offering the hand. I think that's been that mental piece has been huge in just saying friends, I need help. I need, I'm making a calendar for three weeks and I need each one of you to take a day and bring me food and make sure I'm okay and feed my dogs. And because I'm not married, I don't have a significant other. And so I think, um, women in my situation, it's so important for them to prepare their support network and make sure that they're ready, willing, and able to help them because those first couple days when you're recovering from, you know, you're in pain, your anesthesia, so many things, um, just walking to the bathroom is going to be a challenge. Mm -hmm. So it's important to have those people around and not be afraid to 
say I need help. So definitely. What's your, I mean, I know obviously you said you, you, you know, soaked up a lot of information, um, even some of the hard to find stuff. So what is your impression? How do you think, uh, the surgery is going to go and, and then ultimately impact you those few days after, what do you think that's going to look like? You know, I'm really hoping, um, the plan is to have it done laparoscopically, um, based upon the size of the fibroid. Um, my doctor has told me that it may be that it's too large and my uterus is too large that she may not be able to do that, that I may wake up and have a nice little incision or big incision. Um, so I'm fully, you know, mentally prepared, uh, for either one of those things. I think the um, I've got people dropping me off and picking me up at the hospital, and I think the the first couple of days is just about you know relaxing and let, letting myself be taken care of. It's all about rest, so rest is part of the program at this point, mm, more what, now than ever. For sure, yeah. And what's the uh, sort of, I guess you'd say, prescription for rest post surgery? How long will you need to be you know sort of out of the gym, so to speak? <laughs> so I'm not supposed to. I'm not supposed to lift more than. 58 to 15 pounds, I guess, is the the, uh, the perimeters that they give you for eight weeks. And then after they clear you, um, then all I'm told or all I know is that it's a to be very slow and to listen to your body and start with walking. And then that's where Jocelyn comes in <laughs> and I'm like, and then we start working together to understand, you know, what do we need to do to get me back to swinging a five pound kettlebell or a 10 pound <laughs> kettlebell or, you know, lifting with a empty bar. So I'll be looking forward to working with her to take me through those steps. I'm sure that there's, I think we talked about just even understanding how to breathe, you know, your organs and everything are shifted around. So just really understanding how to operate in, in this new mode For is sure. going to be important. So Jocelyn, how is a uh, surgery like this? How does it impact that abdominal area, that sort of pelvic floor area. I mean, I know you guys have both mentioned the word pressure several times in the course of the conversation, both with lifting and recovery and, you know, even something as simple as peeing properly, you know, what changes in that environment? So it depends on the surgical approach. So the, if it's laparoscopic, there's very minimal tissue that is, uh, encroached upon during the actual insert, like the, when the scope is placed, it depends on how the how much uh, encroachment of the fibroid is on the tissues within the pelvis. So how much effort the surgeon has to put forth to remove the fibroid. That typically gives me an indicator of okay, how long is it going to be for her to feel let have less pain. Um, and then at that point, regardless if it's an open or a laparoscopic, laparoscopic procedure, there shouldn't be any cuts directly to the abdominal muscle tissue, but it, there is an opening to the pressure system. So when I say the pressure system, I'm talking about the inside of your body, thinking that your pelvic thoracic cavity is like a soda can or a tire. So when you have a hole in it, whether that's a laparoscopic hole or not, uh, it's like a hole, po uh, poking a hole through the tire. So you can patch that hole, but that hole, that tire is still not going to be as strong as a never had a nail in it tire. So at that point, we're thinking, okay, 
how can we manage the pressure system muscularly to uh, balance now less passive pressure management. Where the pelvic floor comes into into the place is anytime you go into a surgery, either the muscles completely turn off or they begin to guard. So like an ACL surgery or a knee surgery, the quad muscles or the stabilizing muscles kind of go offline. So in rehab, we have to get those muscles turned back on. Um, what I've seen with abdominal surgeries is the pelvic floor actually starts to guard. And this could depend on, you know, how much aggravation happened with the removal of the, of the tissue uh, or how much aggravation uh, or so how angry are the muscles based on the neural stretching that occurred during the procedure or slowly happened as the fibroids grew. So anywhere that the nerves poke through, these small nerves, uh, they poke through, they traverse through the muscle tissue. And where we see trigger points as PTs are often at those uh, nerve points um, where they come out of like a canal or an area that there is a converging, uh, like a ligament or muscles coming together. Um, so I am not so much concerned about that component as I am is the adjustment. So how do people adjust once an organ is actually removed? Because the uterus itself is a, a, a big stabilizing piece, um, that keeps the gut. So when I say the guts, the, the intestines from dropping down, and so when you remove the, in, in the uterus also acts as a shelf for the bladder. So when that's removed, the pelvic floor has a bigger, bigger role now. The uterus is not a striated muscle, meaning we don't have voluntary control over its ability to contract. Whereas the pelvic floor has both components. So you have components where we're controlling the contractions versus there's a automatic or a tonic component as well. So when some women have their uterus removed, physically they feel, they could feel different, but there is a component of having an organ taken away from you that you have to psychologically come to terms with. I don't have a ton of info on this, but I remember sitting through class on the impact that women, the, the after uh, the surgery happened when women didn't know what they were really going into and they had their uterus or their organs removed and yeah. they weren't fully informed on what was happening. And then that psychologic impact was, was very detrimental to those people. And but I, be I believe you can be thrown into menopause, even if it's temporary from yeah. the procedure as well. So that hormonal yeah, so element is, is uh, I think a lot of women don't know about as well. Yeah. So there's, I, is that, did you say temporarily? It can be temporarily, but it can also be permanent. Oh, wow. But I'm my, I'm still having my ovaries. So hopefully they'll continue to keep kicking okay. <laughs> and that will just be temporary or not at all. Wow. Yeah. So in all of those things that I just mentioned have a, an impact on recovery time and ability to get back into activities as for training Julia to get back to what she wants to do. That's, I'm not concerned at all. Um, I know that I'll be able to find, 
one, we we're going to gradually get her adjusted to essentially her new norm. And, um, that is, that's something that going into the surgery she knows is, is some, is something that's going to happen. So, uh, I think that will be a, a relatively quicker, a quicker transition than she thinks. Um, and then (laughs) when it comes to getting back into training where the early phases, well, we're going to distract her with, (laughs) with exercise she probably has never done or uh, are going to be very foreign and different than what she's used to. So teaching her how to use the smaller muscles. And then when we get her back into weight training, which will be quicker than she thinks, depending on how the surgery goes, what will be fun is working with her coach on establishing, like, you know, when someone's going to train for a marathon, that the training volume is increased based on, you know, you don't want to go over 10% increase. Uh, But what I'm trying to come up with are numbers based on her body weight and how it would be make sense to incrementally increase on uh, her weight based on her body weight. Because what she can lift is going to be different than let's say someone else that has a different body type, different body weight. And that five, 15 pound weight limit just doesn't cut it. Like just saying, okay, we're going to go up 10 pounds. So that's going to be something will be fun to do. Yeah. So is that integrity piece of the abdominal wall or the um, pelvic floor? Is that something that will 100% recoup and and she'll be able to get that that usage back to exactly the way it was before or will it permanently be impacted there's no guarantees about what will happen but whatever does happen we'll be able to adapt so there is always the chance of you know an injury somewhere um and the cool thing is our bodies are super adaptable and my background is both on, you know, the, the pelvic floor, the pelvis, but then also training the body to move efficiently or move creatively based on where a person comes, what they present as. So, uh, yes, there's a chance. And regardless of what happens, I'm going to say, okay, if we do this, then this is your risk here. This is what we, what we need to put in place to make you most comfortable or most safe. And then here's what you need to commit to a good diet, not getting constipated, not wasting your reps on pushing to poop or stuff like that (laughs) to keep your longevity in your sport. Right. A hundred percent. So one of the things that was really interesting that you sort of laid out was this idea that, you know, Hey, you know what? Your uterus takes up a lot of space, man. And they're taking it out, man. Right. So you said something about the intestines dropping. I think this is like a a key thing. Right. So like talk to me a little bit about about how that works and if that's a problem or does it have to be a problem at all? And that's my biggest fear. I think that's why I was like, I have to get a pelvic floor therapist because you read and you hear so much about prolapse. Exactly. And so that's one of the things I was like, I do not want this to happen. I don't want to push myself in a way that would cause this to happen and and I don't know that part of my anatomy and what can trigger that to happen so that's why I'm seeking somebody out that can help me understand that and in a way that makes sense to me you know 100% yeah I mean that would be a huge fear at least of mine going into that I mean because so many things are impacted 
again, for the exact reasons that you laid out, which is you're changing the space internally and what that looks like. So there's going to be some sort of impact. And I'm just curious, you know, obviously there's a fear there or or some worry there. And what are your thoughts on that, doctor? Um, (laughs) So sorry if I come off so uh, like nonchalant about this, but the fact that you know this is makes you like so much less likely to have problems. And it's as simple as that is knowing, Mm -hmm. uh, knowing about prolapse. But let me just put your fears, like let me put your fears to rest because a lot of women walk around with prolapse. There's degrees of prolapse. And as long as they know how to manage it, they're okay. So a couple things that predispose women to to prolapse that are just absolutes are uh, having a hysterectomy having higher weights, having participating in, in a sport that, that increases abdominal pressure, injuries during vaginal delivery, um, and then, I don't know if there's data on this, but people with increased joint mobility or connective tissue mobility. So uh, those are things we can't necessarily change. We can't change that you need your, that your uterus is being removed. We can't change that managing weight has been a challenge based on how your history with PCOS. We can't change. Uh, those are the two that we can't yeah. change. Now, and there's no babies. I have yeah, no children. <laughs> there's so much variability in how we can move as human beings. And that's something that I want you to always come back to when you're fearful is one. Okay. If I can't move the same way, Let's, what does it mean to move the same way though? Let's think, let's reflect on that. If I'm moving the same way, I am stressing the same tissues over and over again, but now I'm being forced to learn new tech, new ways of movement. So if I can learn new ways of movement, let's say if one, if movement A is going to predispose me to prolapse, then maybe I just need to do B and C. Um, and then now that you know, I mean, we just need to identify things that are unnecessary so that, so when I say unnecessary, like things that I know that people have problems with and have problems with prolapse would be straining to poop, straining to, to transition in bed, tra- holding your breath when you don't need to, uh, typical lifting patterns, eating patterns, Let's identify those and come up with solutions. So yes, it is a concern, but I see people people have prolapse. I have a prolapse. And some days you're gonna have shitty days. You're gonna be symptomatic and, and it might not even because of a prolapse. It's just, you're gonna feel heavy. And then there are things that we can put in place and uh, like recovery days that we're basically saying, okay, go back up and it'll be okay. Yeah. So are you saying that basically these are things that you can work around? When, Absolutely. Once you're informed, you can sort of, you know, alter your training patterns or whatever patterns are, are at stake to create a different outcome? Yes. And then so in that scenario where, you know, you are creating space, you know, in the abdominal cavity when the uterus is removed, right? And you said the intestines are going to move around, the bladder is going to move around. What sorts of prolapse would be the most common ones? Are you, would it be vaginal? Would it be intestinal? Like, what are you looking at there? So there's several different types of prolapses. There's the, um, cystocele, uh, 
which is, let me just talk about the different walls. So the front wall of the vagina, the back wall of the vagina, the uh, top. Uh, so the front wall would be the, the bladder, the urethra, and then they're not actually in the vagina, but they're, it's pushing into the vagina, so the, the space is being taken up. Uh, the back wall would be the rectum, and the top can either be the vaginal cuff or the uh, intestines. Um, the intestines, it's not something that we can typically check on. I can check physically unless like there's actual tissue Fusion. bulging out. Um, I can check front wall, back wall. I would say most commonly with... Uh, what I see would be a, a rectocele or a cystocele or both, front wall, back wall, um, after having a hysterectomy. But you can have the top as well. Did I answer that question? Yeah, so those would be the two most common. Yeah. So from the front wall or the back wall of the vagina, you're talking about specifically the vagina itself being prolapsed. Yeah, so the vaginal walls are just descending down because the pressure from the organs. Gotcha. And then there, you could have a, a rectal prolapse, but that I don't think is necessarily, um, and that's when the rectal tissue protrudes through the opening of the anus. Mm -hmm. That's not inher inherently connected with a hysterectomy, but I could be wrong. Gotcha. I'd have to review. So the shifting of those organs doesn't necessarily guarantee a problem. It just is a possibility. Yeah. And if you're aware of it, then maybe it's not going to be an issue at all yeah. so long as you're moving properly and you have the correct sort of, I guess, prescription for coming back from it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's almost like how to translate, translate what I've done in the past. Like, how do I pick up a 200 pounds handbag? How have I done this in the past? How am I going to do it now? And you, I think you, I kind of had an aha moment there because you said you're going to do the same things. You're just going to do it in a different way. And I think of my first foray into strongman, you know, I was coached by a lot of men and how we do things as women is different. We've got things in the way, you know, we're trying to lift a log, we've got boobs in the way. <laughs> so there's a new way you have to yeah. learn how to do something. So when I coached, it was like, you can do it this way, guys, or you can do it this way. So that was kind of an aha moment that, yeah, you, it's just a new way of, of doing the same thing. Yeah. You guys are, did you say earlier that you had already talked about some bracing techniques that were that were different from what you had learned previously? Well, in, uh, in the conversation that uh, we had had previously, and uh, um, one of the things she said was, you know, when you're bracing, how are you bracing? Are you pushing down? Is it in your chest? Is it in your back? So I think I've been being very cognizant about um, how am I bracing? You know, how am I using my belt? When am I using my belt? Um, how is that pressure? Is it, you know, shifting up? Is it shifting down? Do I change the way that I brace you know, when I do a deadlift versus a yoke carry versus, you know, anything that I do? So it's kind of made me step back to re-examine the way that I do things. And I think some things I do really well, and then other things I think that I don't. And so I think some of those are bad habits or sloppy techniques or laziness or, you know, just, I've always done it in a certain way. Um, but just even like stepping back and, you know, doing things and looking at it from a new perspective was helpful. So are you at a space right now where you're sort of observing yourself as you're moving around and lifting, or have you already adopted some new techniques in and around like how you brace or how you, how you lift? I think it's just being more observant. I think I've had the most, um, when I do something that's repetitious, like a, a deadlift, I think it's um, resetting is, is a key now. So maybe if I have a set of 10, 
instead of going, you know, plowing through those 10, maybe I need to reset at five to make sure that I'm braced properly and I'm not, you know, why am I using my belt? Am I pushing down on that eighth or ninth set? You know, how am I breathing and filling up my, my lungs versus am I holding, where am I holding this tension? Um, and it becomes, once you start paying attention, it's, it's very apparent. And uh, there's been times where I've, okay, hold on a second. Let me put this down and start again. So, so rather than just going like bang, bang, touch and go, you're like more cognizant about letting the bar rest, completely resetting your body. Yeah. Listening to my body to say, oh, this is not right. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling this pressure. Gotcha. And so how can you use that information of how she's bracing or how she's using pressure to like help you help her? Um, so it tells me, okay, if she tells me, okay, I braced this way and I felt pressure here during or after, then it, it kind of tells me, okay, where is the, we, where do we need to offset the pre- the pressure? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Kind of like compensate, you mean? Yeah. How can we change? Because how can we change the strategy essentially so that she's not feeling that discomfort Mm -hmm. and what is tricky is every it's going to be different for every person and it's going to be different sometimes on the training day yeah let's say she's a little more constipated she might have to brace a little bit different um or she has a she lifted the let's say did chest and is tight through here and just can't get the bracing there um, so it just gives me a guide. Her, her training response kind of gives me a sense of, okay, where do we need to do more recovery or where do we need to strengthen a little bit more, uh, at least like internal support. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking as she's talking, trying to not uh, lose attention of getting ahead of myself and getting <laughs> excited. Of, okay, how would we use the, once her, we know her muscles are recovered, or not in spasm, how could we use the vaginal weights to strengthen and build awareness with her lifts? Already giving me weights. There you go. <laughs> oh, it's already giving her. Glad I brought that. Exactly. exactly. But you know, typically I would be thinking, oh no, she probably doesn't need the vaginal weights. Her pelvic floor might be in spasm based on what she's been telling, what conversations we've been having. But a weight we need to make sure that those muscles are extensible. They can stretch, but they also can withhold or, or support her when she's not only, you know, lifting her own body weight, mm-hmm. like just as living her life, but then picking up 400 more pounds, um, during her sport. Sure. So, t- uh, tell me a little bit about the vaginal weights. What is the purpose of using them? What, what, what will they help, um, Julia accomplish? For example, if you prescribe those to her, um, so for her, what I'm thinking, and this is just a prediction right now, is I would only use them for building girth into the muscle tissue to essentially hold the pelvic organs more effectively at just, you know, we have a, a, a degree of resting tone. So this is my resting tone on my bicep. Um, I want her resting tone of her pelvic floor to be exceptional, but also like she can stretch it can't just be uh, loosey-goosey. <laughs> yeah, she can stretch it to full length so it's not in spasm, but it's it's girthy enough to hold the organs. 
Um, but I'm not doing the typical, okay, you buy the weights, you hold the weight in for 10 to 15 minutes because those pelvic floor muscles are probably already working harder because now there's no uterus. Mm -hmm. So what I, I predict is we need to work more abdominal wall mm -hmm. versus the pelvic floor. So the weights would only to train the muscles as, as if I would put you on a squat cycle of, okay, we're going to do this for eight weeks. You're going to load like this. Your recovery is going to be this amount of time. I do that with the weights. And, and sometimes that's going to be just statically or other times it's going to be during your major lift. I'm also going to get a t-shirt that says girthy on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but you're still, are, did you, are you going to have the shirts made up that says, ask me about my vagina? Uh-huh. So now I, since we talked last, I have my, <laughs> you know, I'll be rocking that. <laughs> my, my logo, nice. uh, the vagina doc logo. And, um, my DBA is, uh, it's official. Nice. It's Congratulations. Congrats. Where's our clap button? <laughs> Not just right. Jocelyn Conley LLC. So t-shirts are, they'll be soon. That's awesome. Awesome. That's, that's is so it t-shirts awesome. or tank tops? What? I think the ladies like the tanks. Yeah. Uh, I know um, you like tees. Though. I'm the tee and then I cut it up and then I just cut off the sleeve. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So have options. Yes. Options, man. Okay. You yeah. can't. Yeah. Options for sure. So talk to me a little bit about the mindset piece. I know, um, I think a lot of your research was in and around kind of like setting your mind at ease and, and understanding what you're facing. Right. And then once you had that in place, like where's your mind right now? Like, I know obviously there's going to be a little bit of fear, but you seem to be facing it pretty calmly and you've exercised a lot of demons, like you said, you know, yes. with the cry the other day yeah. and you've been sharing on Facebook. So where's your head at? I think, um, I've had, a, I've had some conversations with my coach and I'm like, this is, you know, this is not muscle training time anymore. This is all mental training. And so, um, I'm asking for recommendations on, you know, what book should I read? What are some mental strength, you know, uh, what are things that can contribute to that? You know, what am I, during this time, what am I going to be filling my mind with? Am I just going to sit, you know, lazy and watch TV, which I know I'm going to do, <laughs> but what are some other things, you know, some podcasts that I can listen to or some, um, some books that I can read to, um, to help me to, I'm not so worried about now, but then when I'm kind of stuck in that, that rut feeling that I'm looking for, um, looking for that, uh, I don't know that, go get him tiger thing. I don't boost. know, you know, that little boost. Yeah. Um, so I'm just trying to pre prepare myself to have things on hand that, you know, I can turn to, to, um, to kind of reset my mind, mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. And I know you had mentioned mindset plays a huge uh, part of a person's recovery. Um, have you seen that in any of your clients thus far, or has it been something that you've just you know, just that you innately know, like, you know, if someone's in a good space mentally that they're going to do everything that they can to come back. Yeah. And whenever people see me, I try to set them up as like, okay, this is what, this is going to be a, just as much of a mindset recovery or mindset training as it is physical. So especially most of my population is postpartum and I am saying, okay, this is what you're going to be infiltrated with when you step into that CrossFit gym. You're going to, you're competitive. So you are going to want to push a little bit harder than, than 
you are you should right now so think of every time that you feel that urge as okay if I just make it to that next step like whether it's if I just make it to the end of the workout and keep my pace I'm training my mind Mm -hmm. so the mind I, I try to set them up from day one the days that you're having a hard time just look at the end of the day or the next day and say okay if you get through this and you don't lift 20 pounds heavier than than we talked about then you you're that is that's a pr in itself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um that's the way i approach it versus you know someone has to be ready for it too like i don't throw everything at them it just okay what do i need to be a resource for more of a physical resource of giving them physical development or mental development and what's out of my scope at trying to distinguish if i'm the appropriate provider if, if they need more of a mindset coach does that does that make make sense yep. yeah for sure and i think i've set up some things along the way too and knowing that you know this is my sport and i can't necessarily participate in the way that i'm used to and want to now well how can i give back on the other side. So there's that coaching element to that. Um, got some other things in the works, um, but also in helping out in contests where I've said, hey, I wanna come and I can help you run the score sheet. I could do some judging, but I'm not gonna be lifting these heavy weights for you. So just know I'm volunteering, but I'm not volunteering for X, Y, Z. So um, I've been welcomed with open arms. So that's that will be a good mental boost for me as well. And being around that, um, that spirit of competition and still being able to contribute and be a part of it, but without having to do all the heavy lifting, which will be nice. I'm not going to be sore from all that. So <laughs> that's what I wanted to just ask you what I, I think. So of course I want to be able to help everyone, but ultimately I can't. So one of my mission, one, one, one thing that I want to do is train coaches on how to either develop their own programming for their athletes or, uh, you know, ed- just educate yeah. or create, create something and to put in place like a male coach that doesn't understand how to, uh, coach a female. Like we need to be reaching out to more than just the athletes. We need to be reaching out to the coaches itself. So my, my th- thought is, wow, it's going to be great that you are, volunteering at the competitions you're going to be seeing the things that you want to change Mm -hmm. so ultimately developing I mean you're the first person that I see is advocating out there for strong strong men strong men strong man competitors strong women so how can you change that how can you change the culture what can you start doing to be a you know, to co- train athletes different from a younger age. So right now in the CrossFit space, there is Brianna Battles, who has developed the pregnancy and postpartum athleticism. Um, and she's co- uh, has a training for coaches to take that. Um, but there's not much out there right. in the space that you're in. I don't right? think there's anything. I don't think there's anything. And I think, and I don't know if I've connected you with my coach yet, but that's one of the first things he said was, how can I connect with you mm-hmm. um, so that I know 
you know, what you need and how to program for you. And also he's very much like me. He's a seeker of information. And as soon as I told him what was going on, I'm sure he like read 12 books and, you know, (laughs) scoured the internet. Um, but he also reached out to people that he knows, you know, within the athletic community. And before I knew it, I had women from the Highland games, you know, saying, go to this site, go look at this, go get this book, you know, do these things. And so, um, I think it even starts there even before trying to get, you know, bigger and rolling out that message is who's my coach, Yeah. you know, and then those conversations with the women who are closest to me. And then, um, I've actually started a new Instagram account that I'm working on, you know, what my content is going to be for that. Um, and, uh, hopefully I can start sharing this, you know, kind of my journey, you know, starting two weeks out from surgery. Here's everything I'm experiencing. Here's everything I'm going to go through with you. So, um, be prepared for some video and audio for sure. <laughs> um, and share that so that I can get the message out. That's awesome. That is for sure. And we'll definitely collect that information. Um, I think one of the things that stands out is this idea of where to get the information. I yeah. mean, you said yourself, you're having trouble you know, finding some places. Do you remember anything offhand that you could share with anyone who's listening who might be in a similar situation in terms of where you could point them to get some great information aside from someone like Jocelyn? Uh, I think that the best thing to do is talk to your coach and see if they have any information. Um, Talk to a PT, uh, a physical therapist, and ask them about pelvic floor therapy. Do they know somebody? And start that conversation there. There are some women online, especially on Instagram. I'm seeing a lot more Um, pop up. And so that's just, you know, peeling back that first layer. Um, I think that if you go to the internet, if you go online, you're just going to be bombarded with so much information and it's so conflicting that it might be confusing. So maybe just having that one-on-one conversation, um, you know, with a pelvic floor therapist or just looking at their, looking at their website to see what do they do? Maybe that's the first thing is just understanding what do they do and what, how does that apply to me? So just getting that baseline of knowledge before anything else. hundred percent. Yeah. And, uh, I think off mic, you told me a story. You were looking for some information from a Facebook group and got kicked out or something. I like did. That. I joined a Facebook group and it was for like a history hysterectomy support group. And, um, I was in there for maybe a week and a half and I asked, my question was, is how many women in this group have, there's like 14,000 women in the group. Wow. How many women in this group, um, have, have had access to or know what a pelvic floor physical therapist was. And I just had this whole run of women. What is that? I've never heard of that, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so I was like, yes, um, that's, that's why I wanted to be so transparent. Um, and instead of using my words, I'm not a doctor, um, I play one on TV, (laughs) but I was like, I'm not going to use my words to explain, um, what they do. So let me seek out. And I went, I don't remember what site I went to, but I found a medical description of what it was and I attached the link. So it wasn't to any particular party, not selling anything. It was from a gynecological something. I don't remember. Um, but I posted that there, um, to answer this question for these women and apparently attaching a link is no, no. Mm. So I was banned forever from that group <laughs> and they have ignored me now. So wow. it was, uh, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty harsh judgment, but hopefully, you know, maybe we can start something new where that's the, that's the, that's the forefront. So I think in that group, there was a lot of, um, 
there was a lot of tribal knowledge and there was a lot of experiential knowledge versus leading with, um, you know, doctor and medical advice and how you can actually seek out help instead of, Hey, you know, what did you do? What, it, what worked for you? And like you said before, um, we're all different. We all have different body types and what's not going to, what's going to work for one may not work for another. Um, I think if we have a more educational way of letting women know what's available, it's going to be better than that. Even that tribal knowledge that, Oh, I did this. So that should work for you. Hundred percent, yeah. So, um, tell me, what's going to be your sort of long-term success goal post-surgery? What are you hoping to attain or achieve? So, I was supposed to go back. Um, I I won world's strongest woman masters last year, um, and so I was super excited to defend my honor and crown <laughs> <laughs> this year. Um, unfortunately I won't be able to do that. Um, but luckily the, uh, promoter has given me a rain check. So it's almost a year and a half from my surgery uh, when that's going to be. And he said, I can come back at that period of time. So I'm super excited. And that's kind of like a goal of, of that's a long way out of, of where I'd like to be and kind of what I can focus on. So, um, that's, Beautiful. That's what I'm aiming for. That's beautiful. So for all the people who want to follow along on your journey, can you just kind of give us an idea of how to catch up with you online and where we can find you? Yeah, absolutely. You can look me up on Facebook, just Julia Smay, and uh, I will be sharing with you my new Instagram page. Um, my regular page where you can see me lift all the heavy weights is just Smay Strong, S-M-A-Y Strong. Um, follow me there. Nice. Beautiful. And uh, Dr. Jocelyn? I know that you are branching out on your own and taking a huge step here in the near future. Do you want to talk to that a little bit? Ooh, so yeah, I am a, my business name is uh, the Vagina Doc Physical Therapy and Wellness, and I will be a mobile concierge provider. And I'm also trying to set up shop in different spaces that in space, when I'm looking for spaces that I can connect with other healthcare providers, such as maybe a plastic surgeon's office or a uh, midwife office, somewhere that it'll be easy for us to collaborate versus the current situation where it's so hard to communicate with anyone else. <laughs> and you and plan to continue the specialization in pelvic floor, I'm assuming? Yep. So my, uh, I treat, uh, female athletes with pelvic pain, prolapse, urinary incontinence. Um, my website is geared to, towards postpartum women, but that's just the marketing strategy. So I do treat men and women, uh, mainly athletes. And you can find me at thevaginapt.com. And my Facebook is just Jocelyn Conley. And then uh, my Instagram is the, the dot vagina doc. DOC. Cool. So. I'll link all that up. Um, I know that you guys, I mean, the group that you're in, 14,000 women. I mean, that's just a small fraction, I'm sure, of all the women that you guys can impact. So I'm going to link all that up in the show notes and make sure that this is shared out to you guys so you guys can get this out to your communities as well. And as always, the last question is always the same. So maybe we can collaborate since we have two guests today. And that is, uh, what does wellness mean to you? I know I've asked you guys both this question. I'm curious if it's changed since last we spoke. Go ahead. I'll let you go first. <laughs> what did I say last time? <laughs> um, 
I mean, the ability to be present and not be distracted by, you know, pain, whether that is like psychological pain or physical pain, um, and ultimately be able to do what you want to do with the people who you want to be around. Boom. I love that. It's beautiful. I guess for me, wellness is being in the state of, of contentment in such a way that you can pull others up to you. Mm, I love that as well. Guys, I want to thank you guys both for being here. I think this was a, a lot of fun. I enjoyed listening to both of you guys communicate back and forth. And I know that this is going to have an impact on anyone who's facing slimmer circumstances. So I definitely want to get this out. And I'd love to do this again with you and obviously with you on the flip side of this whole thing and check in. And until then, guys, take care. Be sure and look up Julia. Be sure and look up Jocelyn. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.